Hi listeners, before we get to the episode, we want to take a moment to address the June 24 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision could also lead to the loss of other rights. Learn more about what you can do to help. Go to podvoices.help. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is Soundtrack Your Life. We'd like to thank you for listening wherever you are. Uh, Today, our guest is Lance Ingram of the Yesterday's Concert Podcast. Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me, man. I'm super pumped to be here today. I'm excited to have you, and uh, why don't you tell everyone what Yesterday's Concert is about? Yeah, Ryan, thanks. Uh, So Yesterday's Concert is a unique love letter to live music. I have attended more than 750 concerts in my life uh, since 2006 or 2005 to be specific. Um, And so what I do is I take those shows and I put them in like journal format kind of uh, and I bring them to life kind of like Serial or Disgraceland, some of those kind of shows, Uh, add lots of sound beds and things like that to really bring the the, bring the stories to life. Um, So it's really just kind of taking one of my concerts and recreating it in a new and insightful way, adding some some of my insight and some of my musical commentary to the shows that I've seen. Um, So I just try to bring music fans together through my stories that I've been to and attended. Um, So it's just a a fun way for music fans to kind of hear a story and connect to on their own level. Yeah, it's a great podcast. I listen to it. It is a definitely a unique way to tell a story. It's not just him going through the set list and, you know, uploading, you know, poor quality, you know, recordings of <laughs> concerts, but it's a great podcast. Um, I I remember catching um, your Foo Fighters episode, and I think it was maybe yeah. just a couple weeks before Taylor passed. It was. Yeah. And if, yeah. You, and if you're a big Foo Fighters fan, um, I would recommend catching that episode. He does a great job of capturing, you know, why people love going to see them. And, you know, if you're missing Taylor, it's a good way to kind of relive the experience of going to a Foo Fighters show. Yeah, it's definitely a it's it's definitely a different perspective on the band in light, like my telling of that story before he passed away, because I wrote that I, I started editing and writing that one probably four or five, six months before he actually passed away. Um, so it's definitely puts a lot of that story in a new light to have him gone now. So, yeah, it's different. But I appreciate you listening. Uh, so today, Lance and I are going to talk about the 1992 Penelope Spheris film, Wayne's World. So, uh, Lance, why did you pick Wayne's World? Well, first off, I feel obligatory to say this, Ryan, but we party on, Ryan. <laughs> party on, Lance. There we go. So, Wayne's World, uh, like probably most of your guests on the show, it holds a special place in my teenage years. Um, this was a movie that uh, I was a rock and roll kid as a teenager. Um, I really connected to classic rock 
Um, I, I was kind of a strange teenager in that I really didn't listen to what was on the radio. I wasn't a big fan of the modern bands or top 40 or anything like that. Um, I really gravitated toward classic rock and um, another kid that was kind of a weirdo like me, he wore a Wayne's World hat one day and I was like, what's that? And so he was telling me about the movie. Uh, this was like 2002, 2003. Um, and so, you know, that was a big thing for me. But, you know, I just watching that movie it was such a rock and roll movie uh you know even though it really i mean it does deal with like rock and roll but it, the spirit of it is just very rock and roll and i think that translates really well and to me it just connected a lot of ways you know i, I went to go see the who uh this past friday night and while i was there you know i was thinking about you know our conversation i knew our conversation was coming up and i was just thinking about when i watched that movie for the first time i never envisioned that i would get to see bands like the who and the rolling stones and all these kind of artists that i've been fortunate enough to see over the years um, you know, I grew up in middle of nowhere, Mississippi, essentially. Um, so touring bands didn't exactly come through our neck of the woods. Um, so to be able to watch Wayne's World and hear those songs and see the Motley Crue shirts and the Aerosmith shirts, you know, that was just a dream for me. You know, that wasn't reality. But to to be able to live that out now, it just it it takes on a little extra meaning uh, that it didn't when I originally watched it. And, you know, it just it really formed a lot of my my musical opinions and kind of, you know, like the especially the part where he drops at Alice Cooper's feet and he says, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Like that was very much my perception of any musician for a very long time. I, I remember uh, going to see the hold steady in a little bar in Memphis. And it was very much a like, we're not worthy moment, but it's like, you know, this is a, like a 400 cap room, you know, on a Sunday night, it's not exactly like Alice Cooper or Aerosmith or anything like that. And so it really sh shaped the way that I view music in a lot of ways. So that's interesting. You're not someone that was watching SNL back in like the late eighties and getting familiar no. with Wayne's world through, through that you kind of have a completely different way of kind of experiencing it for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm only, I'm only 33. So when this movie came out, I was only three years old. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, I think I watched it for the first time in 2003, uh, 2002. So uh, I would have been right around 13, 14 years old the first time I ever saw it. Um, but yeah, I didn't. I mean, I really, I had to even think about it. Like I didn't watch the SNL sketches of Wayne's World until, uh, I mean, probably just a couple of years ago when, you know, I realized that you could access anything on YouTube, uh, you know, maybe a decade ago or whatever. Um, so no, I, I really came about it in a purely rock and roll fashion you know it was it had nothing to do with saturday night live it was all about rock and roll ah that makes sense before this episode i think we were you know emailing back and i was like oh there's a pic i have a picture of me on the wayne's world couch and you're yeah. just like how'd that happen yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and i was in chicago with my wife and they had a museum that had um like an snl exhibit and they had you know, the celebrity Jeopardy stuff and they had the Wayne's World couch and his guitar. And so I got to sit on it and, and hold the guitar. So I kind of understand why. <laughs> and like for you, you probably wouldn't think of like, oh, yeah, they would have a Wayne's World exhibit somewhere. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, that's I was totally to caught off guard. Yeah. Yeah. That's I had no idea. And that's I mean, I really I didn't even start watching Saturday Night Live until maybe three or four years ago. Uh, you know, I mean, I would see like the big Will Ferrell ones and some of the Andy mm -hmm. Sandberg ones and stuff that would get really big on, you know, social media. 
or even before that, but you know, I really, you know, my father-in-law watches it every Saturday night and we would go visit them. And that's really when I started watching it, it was probably 2018, maybe. Um, I really didn't start watching it before that. So I, I had no connection to it. It was purely because of the rock and roll emphasis. That's really the only thing that brought me into it. Wow. That's was not expecting to hear that, but that's very cool. <laughs> yeah, man. So this soundtrack it went to number one in 1992. There's some covers on this, but there's no real originals except for the Wayne's World theme, I guess. Um, what are some of your favorite songs from the soundtrack? You know, I mean, it's funny. I was I was looking at it, but you know, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, I mean, is really the classic rock hits. The ones that really catch me were like Foxy Lady, you know, Feed My Frankenstein, even though that was kind of a 90s hit. And of course, Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, I mean, that's that's kind of a, I feel like that's pretty much a given with this movie, especially. But at the time when I was a teenager, it was really Foxy Lady. Uh, I remember watching the movie with my mom and the scene itself with Foxy Lady is rather crass. I mean, not given today's comedy, but in the context of what it is, it's rather crass. It's a, for a 13 year old, it's a man hip thrusting towards an attractive woman to a a seductive song. Uh, and I just remember the awkwardness of being like, man, I really love the song, but the scene is really awkward to watch with my mom as this man hip thrust across our scene or TV. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Foxy lady was the big thing. I was a big, like I said, big classic rock fan and Hendrix was especially, I had a big poster of Hendrix on my walls. Um, you know, and it just, it added so much to the scene to have that song in it, you know, just like so much of this movie, a lot of the, the music just really emphasizes the humor, like especially Dreamweaver. Uh, we can talk about that whenever, but, um, you know, just that's what I loved about, especially that song was it added so much to the humor. And then, I mean, especially with, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody, I mean, that was a cultural phenomenon that was started because of the scene in this movie, um, you know, and I was reading up on it again, just, you know, how much the, that scene really put Bohemian and Rhapsody back into the public sphere. Uh, you know, that's what they were saying that a lot of classic rock radio stations had stopped playing it because it was too long. That it was just kind of weird. It was kind of different, but you know, I mean, I went to go see Harry Styles last fall and before he came out to play, they played Bohemian Rhapsody over the, the speakers for the, the arena. And that whole place was screaming the lyrics. I mean, just absolutely screaming the lyrics. And even when they were doing the guitar solo, like people were singing the guitar solo and playing air guitar I mean, it's Harry Styles. These are like 13, 14 year old girls. And so it was just a, it, it was kind of mind blowing for me to be a 30 year old classic rock fan to seeing this. But, you know, going back and rewatching the movie, I, I connected with it again and been like, that's why this happened. Like, that's why this song blew up again. And granted, there was that movie that came out a couple of years ago about Freddie Mercury's life. But I mean, it, it really was just, you know, it's such a powerful scene in a lot of ways, even though it is just humorous in a lot of ways. Yeah, that song, that scene definitely did put Bohemian Rhapsody back on the map. And I think also the lawsuit against Vanilla Ice kind of put Queen back in the, the public <laughs> yeah. consciousness in the early 90s. Like really weird stuff, right? Like you yeah. have this movie based off an SNL skit and you have this rapper who thinks that, you know, because he slightly changed the beat that it's an original piece of music. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> yeah, like Queen was one of those bands when I grew up like, um, you know, I like sports, so I knew we will rock you and we are the champions. Another one bites the dust. I feel like they're, yeah. you know, very popular, you know, jock yeah. jams, but I yeah. didn't really know who queen was mm -hmm. until this song. This was like, okay, 
here's this band called Queen and they made this crazy six minute song and and then it started, you know, connecting the dots like, oh, they also wrote another one yeah. bites the dust. They also wrote Under Pressure. They also, you know, and, and then I was like, oh, this is an amazing band. And it, it's truthfully like it's a really weird song in a lot of ways. Like it is not normal in any way and it's quite peculiar and for people to latch onto it like they have is nothing short of extraordinary because I mean, if you think about the other classic rock hits, I, I mean, it really, it's bizarre. It's a bizarre song, but you know, in, in the context of 20,000 Harry Styles fans screaming the lyrics, it, it, it's really just peculiar to me because I mean, I think about like some of the Rolling Stone songs or even, you know, Aerosmith, you know, they're not doing that with those songs. It's really a song like, you know, just that peculiar for it to be that well recognized. It's just, it's just odd to me, you know, and it, it really speaks to the songwriting. It speaks to the talent and the, especially the production of the song. I mean, goodness, the production of the song has to go a long way into how people actually view it. Yeah. That's a good point. Like um, even like with modern bands, I don't think people really layer a song like that no, or they would call gosh, it, no. you know, or it'd be, or it'd be a song where they, it would be like a, a suite of music. Yeah. You know, like they wouldn't just call it one thing. It would be like three songs blended into one. Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, especially too, because I mean, even, you know, I think Queen, they won, they won a video award because of the song, because uh, they like recut it uh, with some clips from the movie in it. And then I think it also it, like it charted again really big because of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's very, I mean, that just doesn't happen anymore. It's just kind of crazy to think about. Like, I mean, I guess it did with like the Guardians of the Galaxy when, you know, when that, that soundtrack came out, that was a big deal for a lot of people to go back and hear those like classic 70s songs. But, you know, it's just, you don't hear a song this weird become this popular. Right. And and from a movie, like I, I just want to be in that writer's room when they're like, we're going to just do a whole scene to like the majority of Bohemian Rhapsody, just us singing along to the song. Well, and that's what I was reading too. Mike Myers really had to fight. I mean, he threatened to quit the project if they wouldn't use the song. They were saying they wanted to use a guns. I think they wanted to use welcome to the jungle. Uh, they, cause they felt it, it, may, it was a guns and roses song and they, they wanted to do that because they felt it was more in line with the characters, which I agree. But Mike Myers was determined. He said, no, Bohemian Rhapsody is the song we're going to do this to and threatened to leave. And they ended up doing it and it was huge and it completely worked for him. And I mean, stepping outside the movie and looking at the context of the characters, looking at the context of the soundtrack, it really doesn't fit. Like Queen really doesn't fit a lot of these bands. You know, I mean, they're wearing Motley Crue, they're wearing Aerosmith, a lot more heavier, hard rock, 80s metal. So it really doesn't fit the context of the movie, but it, it works and it's great. I think with the characters, like I agree, but I think, cause I was trying to pay more attention to detail this time around mm-hmm. cause I haven't seen the movie in 25 years. Yeah. And I think when they're doing the show at the beginning, I think there's some Ramon stickers like mm-hmm. in the details, there's a little bit more variety. And I think mm-hmm. even with, you know, his fascination over the Fender Stratocaster, like that's not really, a metal guitar. If we want mm, yeah, to get right. really, if we want to get down to like nerdy guitar stuff. No, you're absolutely right. You know, like what he has on the couch is much more of a metal guitar, but his dream guitar is this, just this classic. I think it's a 62. They, they make the, uh, the note before CBS bought Fender, the 62 uh. Stratocaster, 64 Stratocaster, 
Like there's a lot of attention to detail there, but it's not really a metal guitar. Mm, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I think, I think I'm coming at it with kind of a, I guess, jaded perspective as well of just, you know, so I, a lot of my thought process around this movie as well was I was having a conversation with a guy who runs a nineties alt rock blog, um, about a month ago. And the conversation is just weighed heavy on my mind because it, the conversation was about returning to the grunge and what it was like to be an alt rock fan in the early nineties and to see the rise of grunge music, especially because I'd, I'd known this guy before and he was a big metal head before. Um, so he grew up on Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and all these classic metal bands. And he was talking, cause I asked him, I said, so was it like a light switch? Cause you know, all the documentaries, everything portrayed, shows grunge coming in and that was it that it was just all nirvana pearl jam Soundgarden, and he was like it really wasn't he was like yes there was a big cultural shift kind of like when the beatles came on television and everybody in america saw it but he's like it wasn't overnight because you still had motley Crue selling out arenas you still had aerosmith with hits and you know he was just saying it was around 94 that the grunge movement actually took over and was really the predominant thing in all your metal bands and 80 bands were gone or, you know, stuck in small clubs again. And so, you know, thinking through the context of this movie, it was, you know, written and recorded in 91. It didn't come out until 92. So they were experiencing that grunge movement as it was happening. Yet, you know, Wayne and Garth are very much 80s metal rockers. You know, all the characters are 80s metal rockers. And so, you know, I, I was thinking about the, the singles soundtrack that came out in 92 as well. And that characterizes the scene and the year so much better than the Wayne's World soundtrack does. Because, I mean, even like the three, I was thinking about the three classic rock artists on here. Um, you have that came out with new album or new songs. You have Eric Clapton, Alice Cooper, and Black Sabbath. They sound incredibly dated. And those are some of their like, those are not like, I mean, Feed My Frankenstein's good. Uh, but, you know, Loving Your Loving, like that's just a terrible song. And as well as like Time Machine by Black Sabbath, that's just another terrible song. And it's just interesting that like Wayne's World fails to capture the cultural moment that it was in. Am I making sense or am I just rambling? I see where you're coming from, but I also think that that's done on purpose. Like I think they're supposed to be kind of only the hip outcast. in their minds. Yeah, I think they're only yeah. supposed to be hip in their minds. You know, like Wayne lives with his parents and they and Garth has that beat up car, the Mirth Mobile. Like, I don't think you're supposed to necessarily look at them as like they're the coolest people. Well, what about when like they arrive at the beginning of the movie and like everybody's like, oh, this is what everybody watches. And they arrive at they're somewhere in the car. I can't remember where they showed up at. And they're like, oh, hey, it's Wayne and Garth. Oh, yeah. like, I mean, they seem to be like popular people. So at least I mean, there's that. But I think I think more so it was. I, I, I think. You know, I think you're right. I do think you're right in that. I think I'm getting more at like, I'm still going back to that conversation in my head of it was still that transitional period between grunge and metal fading out and to see, you know, between singles where it really captures the grunge side versus Wayne's World where it still captures that dying metal side. There's just this overlap between the two movies that came out that year that kind of they overlap in that period. And I, I don't know. I just found that really interesting when I was rewatching it this time. Uh, I've never thought of taking those two movies and kind of putting them side by side. They did both come. I guess I didn't think about like, Oh, they both came out in 92. 
Yeah, they're both 92. That's why I had to look it up because I started thinking about it and I was like, because I mean, I, I think a singles is like the like premier like grunge alt rock soundtrack of the 90s whenever I think of that. Uh, that's that's always the one I kind of drift to. So, I mean, to to me, you know, that that was something I looked up when I was watching the movie yesterday. I was like, you know, that's that's kind of crazy. These both came out at the same time and there's such contrast of the scene, the music scene at that time. Right. I think the biggest difference, or I guess how I would explain the difference between the two movies and why they both kind of work in the same year, even though they're very different views, is C- uh, Singles takes place in Seattle, mm-hmm. right? And all the characters yep. are from that scene, and you have legitimate members of Pearl Jam in the movie, yeah. Citizen Dick. Um, I think it's important that Wayne's World is in Aurora and not Chicago. Mm. Yeah, that's you a know, good point. They're in the suburbs, right? So I think that already by default makes them less cool. <laughs> and I think that's why it's like okay that they're like still in this older scene because they're not in the center where culture is. That would be mm. Chicago for them. Yeah. No, you're you're much better at analyzing films than I am. I'm way too attached to the musical side of it, and you're absolutely correct. Um, no, that's a really good perspective on it. I appreciate that. And I think in the second movie, they bring up, bring up Peter Frampton as like the soundtrack of the suburbs. Oh, yeah, they do, don't they? I haven't watched that one in a hot minute. I remember I remember not loving it as much, even though they had Aerosmith in it. That was really I remember watching that as a teenager. I'm like, oh, my God, there's Aerosmith. But yeah, I haven't watched that one in a long time. I got to go back. I should have done better homework. I'm sorry. I, I got to I just went from an A to a B on my exam <laughs> because of this. No, you're, but you're right. Wayne's World 2 should have been a better movie. The idea of yeah. Wayne and Garth starting a music festival should have been an amazing movie. Oh, yeah. It did not. I, I remember even as a teenager when I had zero awareness of movies, good or bad, I, I remember not loving it like I did the first one. I mean, even yeah. even like kind of we were talking about earlier, like, you know, this movie is still funny. I mean, 30 years later. I mean, it still hits in a lot of ways. You know, I was not expecting to laugh out loud as much as I did when I rewatched it. It's it was a very, you know, I don't I don't love going back and rewatching older movies, but the the humor was definitely still there. Yeah, I was expecting the worst when I rewatched it. You know, a movie from 1992 based off a sketch. You know, yeah. I knew there was going to be a lot of, you know, ogling at women and all that stuff. Yeah, um, it it's not as offensive as I thought it would be. Obviously, some there, things are not as great, but yeah, I was gonna say there were still a couple things I caught when I rewatched it that I was like, "Oh, wow, I that that's not okay." Like that part is not okay. Like, uh, you know, the way they call things mental, like that's really not cool now. Um, you know, it's just really a snapshot of the time and what was allowed to be said then. Definitely not today. Right. And, you know, going showing at women and you know things <laughs> yeah. like that. Like, but that's why I, I also think it's kind of okay because they're not supposed to be cool people. Like, yes, they're supposed to be kind of lame by default. So like there's a scene where he first meets Cassandra and he says like, oh, there's a lot of Kung Fu fighting tonight. And then he kind of winces like he realized he said something stupid. Yeah. And I and I think that's kind of like the movie has like a good self-awareness that it's kind of terrible about things at times. Well, I mean, it's very. Uh, it's very meta in a lot. I mean, they break the fourth wall a lot more than I remembered. Mm-hmm. And it, and you know, I mean, even like 
when he and Cassandra are in bed and she gets off the phone and they start like pretending to make out and it's like self, you know, gratuitous sex scene or whatever it is. And I mean, multiple times through the movie, it does that. It'll pop up at the bottom and just say something. And it, you know, it is very meta and it is very self-aware, like you're saying, you know, and I, I mean, I really wasn't aware of meta jokes until Deadpool. <laughs> I mean, so it, to me, it was really, you know, it's a really cool thing to do for so far back. Yeah, there weren't a lot of meta movies back in the 90s, uh, at least not from my recollection. I recently did an episode on Josie and the Pussycats, and that movie is nice. also super meta. Oh, um, really? It's also like a pretty fun rock and roll movie, but I think in 2001, people were like, like, what the hell is this? That's As a rock and roller in the early 2000s, that was my exact reaction to that movie. I never watched it. Uh, I'd like to think of... I should go back and rewatch it or watch it for a first time to show how much I've progressed as a human, because I, I definitely had that thought as a, because I mean, I was definitely like that really stupid kind of like Ted Nugent, Leonard Skinner, uh, you know, just really, you know, cock rock kind of, that's what I was into. Um, you know, so that definitely was my mindset a lot. And I mean, you, a movie like Wayne's world, you can see with that kind of mindset, you can see why I would appeal to a young, dumb teenager like me who loved loud guitars and music that objectified women and things like that. Um, so it was, you know, it was really right up my teenage alley and I probably just said enough to get myself canceled there. <laughs> no, I mean, it was, so I saw this movie right when it came out, I might've seen it in the, in the theaters cause I have older siblings mm-hmm. And they wanted to go watch it. I have sisters. They're like, let's go watch the Wayne's World movie. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I think I enjoyed the movie much more in 2022 because I didn't have them there to like yell at me about how little I knew about music. I was like, oh, that Tia Carrera song, Fire, is great. I was like, That's a Jimi Hendrix song, stupid. <laughs> and it's like, That's oh, funny. like I, I don't, I, I make five dollars a week in allowance. I don't have access to a lot of music, you know. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's funny you say that because she was actually like my least favorite. Like her songs were my least favorite ones in the movie. Uh, I don't particularly love her voice. And rewatching it, the her songs sound incredibly dated. Like a, I mean, even more so than like the Hendrix song or and things like that. Like the the one song "Why You Want to Break My Heart." That song sounds incredibly eighties, nineties. Like it just sounds so dated when I rewatch the movie and. I mean, maybe it's just my bias, but like Foxy Lady still still rocks pretty hard today. Like it's kind of crazy. Yeah. No, I no, I mean now it's like, yeah, it's not the best version of this song. But you know, yeah. I think it might have been the first time I heard fire in any capacity. And yeah. Then, you know, led me down to who is this Jimi Hendrix? Well, it's uh what was it? The Dreamweaver. I was reading that he re-recorded the song specifically for the movie and uh i i mean like that's one thing that i noticed about it that i didn't really connect with as a teenager was like how well it adds to the comedy of the scene which is how much it intensifies the moment and you know i caught myself laughing at it and then i was like you know i've never listened to that song intentionally in full and so i went back and re-listened to it yesterday and i was like you know this is actually a really great song it's got a really great a really great groove to it. And I was really, I was kind of astonished at how much I liked it today. And I thought about like, you know, kind of like I was saying earlier, like 16 year old Lance would have absolutely hated this song. Like there's nothing about it that he would have liked, but I mean, like 
today I, I, I listened to it and I was just like, you know, this there it's got a really great groove to it. And, you know, just thinking about how they used it in the movie, it, it really added a lot to the scene and just made the humor. I mean, that's what I think I may have said this earlier, but just like the music adds so much to the humor in this movie. It's, it's just really incredible to see, you know, the elevation of humor through music. Yeah. I think on first glance, people don't really think of this as a music movie because it's not about them being in a band. Yeah. You know, like it's a side story, right? Cassandra has a band. She's the love interest, but it's not about mm-hmm. them trying to be in a band, but it's a super music reference heavy movie. Yes, it is. And you know, it's funny because I was thinking about, you know, we were talking earlier and before we started recording, I was telling you about watching um, Dumb and Dumber over the weekend you know, which is also another 90s comedy. And I started thinking about how, you know, especially after watching Wayne's World, basically the the comedy movies of the 90s, it felt, I mean, even today to some degree, it felt like they were just a series of bits with like occasional drops of plot dropped into them. It, it, it's basically you would have a bit that they would, like, I mean, the Grey Poupon bit, it adds nothing to the movie. It does nothing other than just create a laugh. And it just feels like the movie is a series of bits with an occasional line or something dropped in to advance the plot, just the smallest amount. And I mean, Dumb and Dumber was really like that. You know, and that's something I never really recognized is because as a teenager, I just thought, oh, it's rock and roll, it's music, it's all this kind of stuff. But I never acknowledged that, you know, it's really just a bunch of bits. I mean, I guess it's a bunch of skits from Saturday Night Live pieced together to make a movie in essence. Right. Like you have them doing the whole, you know, fake product placement thing while they're talking to Rob Lowe's character. And like, that's totally a sketch, right? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, and they, I mean, again, going back to the meta part, even when they walk out of the club, when they're seeing Alice Cooper and uh, Chris Farley standing there as the security guard and they're like, Oh wow. He has a lot of knowledge about this really random thing that he shouldn't know anything about. Hmm." Right. And then later in the movie, they're like, Oh, that information they gave us is now relevant. Exactly. So, I mean, it's like, it's all just like, I mean, even like the plot advancement was a bit, I mean, it was just, it was really, I I never noticed that about a movie until I did the rewatch and, you know, it really, I mean, I don't hate it. I mean, honestly, like, uh, you know, as I've come to appreciate Saturday Night Live more, I think it gave me more of an appreciation for what they were doing in the movie, just to be able to see them string together, you know, a series of skits essentially to create a 90 minute movie. Did you catch that meatloaf as the security guard at the uh, Gasworks? Yes, that's. I was like, he looks familiar, and then I was like, that's meatloaf. Yeah, I did catch that one. Yeah, he was like the king of awesome cameos in movies. You know, he, I know. That's. I was thinking about the Fight Club. Fight yeah. Club. Yeah. Well, Fight Club. It wasn't necessarily a uh, you know, but he had a, a role in that one. But yeah, that, I did see that. I was like, that's awesome. So, and I feel, and that's what I was looking through the cast. I'm like. I had to have missed somebody like there has to be somebody else in there, like buried in there or something. Like, I feel like I've missed like some great rock and roll legend hanging out in the background on a scene too, but I didn't see anybody. So maybe not. Yeah. Speaking of the madness of the movie, there's like a Mary, Mary Tyler Moore show reference in the middle of the movie when they go to Milwaukee. Yes. Yeah, I did. I, I, yeah, that one's really great as well. That was, uh, as a teenager watching it, I was like, I, I don't understand right, what, yeah. what's happening now. But like as an adult, I was like, okay, I got that now. That's, that was a great reference. 
And then in the middle of it, they're like, oh, wait, we have Alice Cooper tickets. What are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, that was really funny. And that's, I, I've, I've been lucky to see Alice Cooper three or four times now. And it was, it's funny to see, you know, like early nineties, Alice Cooper, because I mean, by that point he wasn't, he wasn't really popular anymore. Uh, you know, Feed My Frankenstein was actually a little bit of a hit and it kind of brought him back into relevance again, which is so weird to me that you have all these like 70s guys that are coming back and making hits in the late 80s and the 70s. When you compare that to modern music today, you just don't see people from like the late 90s, early 2000s coming out with hits anymore. Um, you know, it's really they're just kind of viewed as nostalgia acts when people do that today. But, you know, it's really weird because, I mean. Feed My Frankenstein was a legit hit. It's a song that he still plays in his concerts today, you know, and I, part of it is who he had, like the personnel on the track. He had Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and Nikki Six playing on it. And, you know, they were still pretty much all in their career peaks at that point. Um, but it was really cool. And, you know, but getting to the movie, like, you know, being able to see him today versus 30 years ago, it's crazy. He still looks old in the movie. Like, I mean, it's very clearly like a guy who's past his prime, you know, but they, and they bypass the cliches and the stereotype of who you expect Alice Cooper to be. And, you know, the first time I saw Alice Cooper, I was amazed that like, he never breaks character life. He always plays the exact same Alice Cooper character. I'm assuming until he steps off the stage. Uh, you know, he never says, thank you for coming. He never like the song was written. It's all very much like this menacing, glaring, figure on stage that's super imposing um so it was really cool just to, to go back and see it in light of actually having seen alice cooper in concert multiple times yeah and i'm also wondering in the early to mid 90s i feel like a lot of older rockers were still viewed hip enough to be like on mtv <laughs> yeah if that kind of helps things like you know aerosmith had a huge comeback in the mid nineties, right? With the oh, Silverstone videos. You know, I remember uh Tom Petty still being on MTV. I mean, obviously Wildflowers was an amazing yeah. record, but you know, he was making videos. Oh, and it's such a I think it speaks to the quality of the artists from the late sixties and early, in the seventies and even into the early eighties that they were able to kind of defy those norms. Cause I mean, I don't think it's just that things have shifted. I think they were also such a special batch of talent. I mean, those really were like the early rock and roll pioneers. I mean, you take the 1950s and early sixties out of the equation and you have this brand new like brand of rock and roll that had never been done before. And I think they were so prolific in a lot of the ways that they were making music. Cause I mean, even I, I'm trying to think of, a, a, I mean, Led Zeppelin, I mean, they had, like six really great albums to start. I mean, they're, they were only like a 10 year career, but I mean, like the majority of their career, their albums just hit one after the other. I mean, thinking about so many of those artists, their, their albums just hit and constantly hit. And you didn't have things like the internet to distract you. I mean, I think that's one of the things today is just that we're not able to savor the things like we used to be able to, because I mean, kind of like we were talking earlier before we recorded too, like I'm a big fan of King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. And they came out with five albums in 2017. I mean, that's barely enough time to digest one of them before they're coming out with another one. And so I, I think, you know, that was, there was such a special time of artistry that it did just carry over. Cause I mean, even today they're still, I mean, the Rolling Stones are selling out stadiums. I mean, 80,000 people. 
I mean, you know, even modern pop stars aren't like Britney Spears isn't doing that. And she's still a huge name in music. You know, you know, Justin Bieber, he had to cancel a stadium tour and move into arenas because it was selling so poorly. Uh, It's just it's a very peculiar brand that they've had such longevity. It's just it's really incredible, in my opinion. Oh, for sure. And like, I didn't realize it in the 90s, but I think, you know, I think there's some similarities to. Or that grunge has similarities to 70s rock. Oh, absolutely. I think that's where a lot of the inspiration comes from. And that's how they were able to kind of relaunch, you know, like Neil Young was able to relaunch with Pearl Jam. And, you know, make a make an album with electric guitars again. And, you know, and I think Wayne's World is maybe the end of an era, but and maybe singles is the beginning of another one. Yeah, you may be right about that. And and I think it's too like because, I mean, today we have so much technology that you don't need to learn an instrument to be an artist, to be a musician. You know, you can do everything from your computer, whereas, I mean, for from the 60s until I mean, even guess going into the 50s, really and truly, up until the mid to late 90s, guitar was the instrument. I mean, that was the instrument of cool. You know, you if you wanted to be cool, you either played guitar or you played drums. You know, whereas now we have so much technology, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to play guitar to be cool. You can make really great beats and, you know, rap and do other ways to to really express art, express artistry. Um, so, uh, you know, they had such a hold, the instrument had such a hold on popular music, you know, it's just, it really had a way to hold its, its strength over time. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like the idea of Wayne lusting over this Fender Stratocaster guitar shop. Like, I feel like it would be lost on so many people if this movie came out today. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, even like the no stairway to heaven joke that they make when he starts playing the song and the, the shot, like I can remember, I mean, like I was saying the first time I watched it was a decade after it came out and I can remember going to guitar stores and like, they would give you mean looks if you started playing smoke on the water or things like that. And I mean, and I can't blame them. They probably hear that kind of stuff all the time, but you know, that was definitely something that happened in those, you know, the early aughts that was still relevant. Um, but I, you know, I haven't gone into a music store in a while now, but uh, I would assume it's a little different. They probably don't hear it as much as they used to. Yeah. And then obviously the qual, like the technology with instruments is different now too. Oh, you know, absolutely. I was looking at guitars and my friend was like, Hey, you can get this one acoustic guitar that has these knobs where when you plug it into an amp, it sounds like an electric guitar and it just like modulates everything. Yeah. He's like, you can yeah. always get that if you're looking for, you know, something that can do a bunch of different things. And, you know, just the well, kind of old school guitar person. And he's like, I, I can't do that. Like that thing looks I weird. Oh, and that's, I mean, and that's, you know, I, like, I, like I was saying, I'm the, the cock rock, the, the big guitar riffs, the stadium rock. That's, that's at my core who I am. Um, you know, I definitely have gone beyond that in my taste today, but you know, a part of me, still kind of pines for that. You know, like I went and saw Greta Van Fleet in 2019 and they're very much a retro rock and roll band. And, you know, I'm working on an episode about them for my upcoming season. And and I kind of came to this realization of like, am I just pining for the good old days or am I trying to look to the future of music? And, you know, there was a lot of just kind of pretension 
and still living in the seventies rock instead of saying like, let's make something new. Let's try something different. Um, you know, and I, I really, it really bothers me when people say like, there's no good music today. Like they don't make music like they used to. Like there's a lot of really great music being made today. Um, you know, there's just not, you have to go digging for it a little bit more sometimes or to find what you like or to find, you know, your taste, but there's still a lot of really great music being played. And, you know, I, you know, I do wish the guitar was more popular, but you know, there's just to, to just shut down anything else that doesn't have guitar is foolish. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think any traditional instrument will ever go away because they're the foundation of music in general, you know, like pianos and sure. and the guitar, bass, drums. And, and I heard uh, an argument the other day about, you know, you, you know, you had jazz in the early 1900s that was so popular. And at one point you had blues being so popular. And then, you know, rock had its place in time. You know, blues and jazz are still prevalent. You can still find both. There's plenty of jazz and blues clubs all over the country. I mean, I, I've seen blues artists i've seen jazz artists and you know they they may not be selling out arenas but they're still there they're still out there i mean uh, you know I, I don't think rock and roll music will ever take a back seat like either of those two genres did but i mean it's not like rock and roll music is going to go away you know it just it may not have its spot in the spotlight anymore uh, it, it may have moved on um you know and that's thinking about the movie you know, if they made it today, it would probably be a rapper. Like it would probably be a, you know, somebody who was obsessed with early alts rap or something. If we're putting the date on it, you know, just like they are with eighties music. Um, so I would be interested to see what a Wayne's world today would look like. That would be an interesting perspective. I mean, it, I, I feel like they, they, they kind of zero in on something so specific in that movie. Mm -hmm. Like, and I wonder if, the success of Bill and Ted is also kind of what feeds into Wayne's world. Like, I feel like they're just like a, a hornier version of Bill and Ted. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right about that. That's really funny. I'd never thought about that, but you're right. <laughs> like, I think they're skewering a cultural sort of thing that I was too young to understand. And you were barely born, <laughs> born to understand. <laughs> But by doing this podcast and talk, and going through all these different soundtracks, I think the Tia Carrera tracks that, you know, maybe haven't held up very well. Um, I think in 2022 or even in like the late 90s, they would have just brought in a bunch of like session musicians and she would have had to um, like lip sync to someone's voice. Like, like, you know, like I was talking about the Josie and the Pussycat soundtrack. Um earlier in this episode, they brought in Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo to sing. They mm. brought in like Matthew Sweet and all these other musicians to like yeah. play all their instruments. Like at this point, like on there's very few times where like they'll let someone who is not known for singing actually sing on a song. Yeah. And I'm thinking about, you know, the one of the more recent rock movies to come out. I'm thinking about the Elton John rocket man movie um the i'm blanking on his name the guy that was the that played elton john he did all the vocals in that correct like he he sang all the songs right yeah so they got um what's his name uh, i'm blanking on it i know his last name starts with an e right yeah taron taron egerton i believe that, sang that's it yeah 
I was like, I'm sure they invested so much more into like the production of those songs because they were Elton John songs and Elton sure. John obviously had to sign off on all of them. So I think they take the production of these covers a lot more seriously if they're going to have someone who's not sure. like a trained singer sing on these songs. Well, and I remember uh, what the movie Across the Universe came out in 2007, I think. And there was a there's a scene at the end of the movie where a guy is sitting down in a bar and he's playing this beautiful version of um, A Day in the Life, I think. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, that dude could play so good. Like, I didn't know that actor could play. And I went and looked it up online later that night. And it was Jeff Beck. Like, he had played the song and recorded it. And they had just made the guy look like he was playing it. And it was such a bummer to find out that, that the actor wasn't actually playing. It was Jeff Beck. And I'm like, well, that's seems not as cool anymore, like kind of loses some of its specialness. So, and that may be what makes, you know, Cassandra's band fit better in the movie is the fact that she's actually doing the vocals on all these tracks. Yeah. I guess they're maybe not supposed to be that great, right? Like their band isn't like, if they're too good, then of course they should be signed. Sure. No, you're right. I mean, to me, and like, this is going to sound a lot more, rude than I mean it to be, but she had like her voice has Yoko Ono vibes to me. Like when I was listening to it, like I, cause it, you know, the, the, the Beatles documentary on Disney plus was, is still fresh of mind for me. And, you know, I just kept thinking, I was like, she, like her, her wail, her scream kind of sounds like Yoko Ono's to me. And that, you know, that that's not as much of a knock as I mean it to be, but you know, Yoko Ono never really had a lot of success outside of John Lennon. Um, I'm not really sure where I'm going with that, but that was something that I really picked up on when I watched the movie was just how similar the voices kind of sounded, especially when they were screaming. Yeah. 1992, I probably couldn't make that sort of connection. And I was like, <laughs> it sounds good to me, but you know, it's not a version, but it's not like, you know, if I'm building a Spotify playlist, I'm going to go, I need that Tia Carrera Wayne's world version. Yeah. Um, though I remember yeah. <laughs> I was going to, um, I was at Disneyland out of all places and sometimes they'll have these bands play in Tomorrowland on like a Friday, Saturday evening. Just, you know, it's that whole Simpsons thing where like they're trying to plan something for everyone. So yeah. if it's a Friday night and you want to go to a rock show, there's going to be a rock show at Disneyland. Yeah. And I remember it was an all girl band and they started with Ballroom Blitz. And oh, I know cool. it's a cover, but I immediately was yeah, like, yeah. Wayne's World. <laughs> that's awesome. That's really funny. So at least that stuck with me. There you go. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of what, like, I, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's a good point that, you know, the cover stuck with you. And I mean, I think I can remember in high school, um, I think it was Limp Biscuit came out with, I think it was Limp Biscuit. Maybe I don't, some band, some new metal kind of band came out with a cover of behind blue eyes by the who. And I remember, you know, I was talking to my buddy and he was just talking about like, no, I listened to the original and this one's definitely better. And I'm like, you know, the classic rock guys, like, no, there's no scenario where that that version is better. And, you know, the argument now is, you know, that was their preference. That's what they enjoyed more. You know, I mean, I enjoy Elvis's version of something more than the Beatles version of something, which may be sacrilegious in a lot of ways. But, you know, I, Elvis, I grew up on Elvis. I mean, he was the first thing I ever, the first music I ever loved. I listened to him. Uh, I, I make no exaggeration here. I, he was the only artist I listened to for like six years of my early life. Um, and so for me, something 
is an Elvis song, sadly. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's funny because I mean, the cover becomes kind of its own thing to the different listeners. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely get snarky with people where they'll be like, Oh, I know that song it's by, and they'll say some band where that's not the original artist. And, you know, it's easy to like scoff like, ugh. yeah. But then I'm just like yeah. my siblings who did that to me when I was watching Wayne's world. I was like, Oh, I like that Tia Carrera fire song. <laughs> And, and that's, I mean, that's the hard thing about gatekeeping or uh, about music is, is the gatekeeping because I mean, it's so personal to us. I mean, that's, you know, you think about, uh, uh, you can look at so many different artists that have said it. It's like, well, what are these lyrics about? And it's like, well, what are they to you? And you know, the lyrics, the way we interpret lyrics and the way we digest music in general is so personal to us that, you know, it, it's hard not to get defensive about the things that we love and it's hard not to, 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 to to view it personally whenever somebody says they don't like the song or whatever, you know, that's, I'm a very firm believer that there is no such thing as bad music. You know, I, I may not like all music. I may not love all music, but there is something special to be had in it because it means something to someone. It means something to the artist that created it. And, you know, it, it is, it can be difficult sometimes not to gatekeep with people and tell them like, Hey, that song actually kind of sucks, but that's just my opinion. You know, as, as the dude says, like, that's just your opinion, man. Yeah. Someone asked me, like, what do you do if someone wants to cover a soundtrack that you don't like? And I was like, well, if they like the soundtrack, that's what's important. Yeah. That they like the soundtrack. I don't have to like the soundtrack. That's not what this podcast is about. It's not my favorite soundtracks. It's about soundtracks that people connect to and exactly. have really cool stories about. And, you know, when I talk music with people, and I think I've learned to do this more on Twitter, it's like, I may not like any of the bands that you're talking about, but if you're really informed on them, if you can explain why you really connect with them, like I'm not going to pass any judgment on you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's just no point in putting someone's taste down because, I mean, that's that's what brings them joy. That's what they find creativity in. That's what they find, you know, a lot of life and joy in. And there, there's just no point in bringing somebody down about it. And I think when I realized that about myself, I think it made me, it made me appreciate my music better. Cause you know, I, I've seen several posts, several people post on social media about like, man, I have such great music taste or something like that. Like I, you know, I love this song and it's just the best song. And it's like, that's cool, man. Like if that's how you want to view yourself, that's great. Like, you know, but it, it's just not worth it to me. Like, you know, you know, I think there was, there was a John Mayer, interview I was listening to and he was talking about people's perception of understanding music. And he was just saying like, you don't have to understand everything. You can appreciate it from afar. You can appreciate that other people appreciate it, but you don't have to understand everything. And that to me was a big breakthrough because like I've talked about this on other podcasts before. It's like, I struggle to understand Radiohead. I'm coming around on them more. I don't, they're not, you know, I know they have a lot of big time recognition. A lot of people really love and adore their music, but for me, they don't move the needle that much. And for years I thought that made me a bad music fan when in reality it was just, I had not got to the perception that I understood it yet. Yeah. And like going back to this soundtrack, like I think when I was young, you know, I didn't listen to harder rock, so I would probably just kind of ignore a lot of this stuff, kind of just dismiss it. 
And now I've come back and I've had a lot of appreciation for a lot of these artists, you know, like, you know, Black Sabbath or, you know, Hendrix, like I didn't get into until like much later in in life. But, you know, at, at first, I think when this movie came out, like I was just a kid. So I was just like, you know, I don't worship the devil. I don't <laughs> have a bunch of tattoos on my body. Like this is not music for me, but now it's just... You know, I if I if I don't like some of the stuff, it's for purely musical reasons and not because, you know, I didn't identify with it. But back in 1992, I'd just be like, I'm, you know, Alice Cooper. Like, yeah, I'm not I'm not one of these metalheads. So I think going back to kind of what I was talking about earlier, how I viewed like this movie really established in me that, you know, that kind of Alice Cooper scene where they drop to their knees and start saying, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. That really put into my mind that, you know, all rock stars were of that caliber, that all musicians were in that thing. And like I was talking about with the hold steady, like the hold steady were, I mean, they were a popular indie band, but they were not Aerosmith. They were not Alice Cooper. And, you know, when I went to see them in a small club, like, I mean, they were, they were a bar band essentially. And I'm sitting there thinking they're on the equivalent of Aerosmith or something like that, you know? And so I really think that, you know, that plays into that musical growth as well as starting to understand the reality behind these artists and just the level of who they are and what they are. And kind of go back to what I was saying earlier about just, you know, their evolution as well as people and as artists, you know, it just kind of comes full circle. Yeah. And the whole, you know, I feel like the whole larger than life thing has been for better or worse. It's kind of gone away with a lot of rock stars you know, yeah. I went to a show where, so this is a bit of a humble brag. I'm sorry. No, drop it. Drop it. I love it. I went to a, a Foo Fighters show where it was Dave Grohl's like birthday show. It wasn't like a small venue. It was at a big place. And it was ba- it was like a celebration of Foo Fighters songs and covers with like all their favorite people. So the show started with them walking out on stage with Paul Stanley and they did two kiss songs. And then, That's awesome. and then they did like three Foo Fighter songs. And then they brought out like slash and Jack black to cover immigrant song. And, Oh my gosh. Um, but, but like I, they brought out, um, Perry Farrell at one point to do some Jane's addiction. And then at the end, like the big surprise for everyone is they brought out David Lee Roth to do some Van Halen songs. That's awesome. And just seeing how, they just walk on stage or how they walk around the stage. It's so different than like even how Dave Grohl walks around the stage. Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of had that larger than life. Like I'm a front man and this is what a front man needs to do to kind mm-hmm. of get the audience going. Yeah. No, that, and that's, there was a, I went to see Willie Nelson. Um, this was 2017. Um, I went to go see him. I drove to Chattanooga, which is about six hours away from where I'm at in Memphis. And, they didn't have video screens. They didn't have anything like that. And it was a pretty big room and I was pretty far back. And like, just to see the way his fans adored him. Cause I, I couldn't see him very well at all, but just the way his fans adored him and worshiped at his feet. And when he played those songs, just the way they got so excited. I mean, he had that larger than life persona. And I mean, he's a, cl- I mean, he's a music legend, not even just country legend. I mean, music in general. I mean, he is up there. And then like a month or two later, I saw him at a small club down in Mississippi and I had bought a front row seat. And I mean, I was probably 10, 12 feet away from him. And just the difference of my 
perception of him. He was an old man. He struggled to breathe. He, he was clearly not feeling well. He didn't, it, it was just a completely different perception of him. I saw the old man instead of the legend. I saw the human instead of the legend that night. And it kind of made me sad, quite honestly. Um, you know, because I, you know, you like to think of these like David Lee Roth types as the mythic larger than life. I mean, like, can you imagine Elvis like buying donuts next to you? Like that it's just so it takes the mystery out of him. It, it removes the rock star caliber that we want to imagine our rock stars as. And, you know, there's a reason that they create these personas. I mean, uh, thinking about like Motley Crue and stuff, like imagine if Motley Crue didn't do drugs, like how lame would they be? You know, it's just that larger than life persona really makes a, makes an artist so much bigger and better in a lot of ways. Yeah. You don't see that anymore. You know, I think one of the best representations of that is with, you know, Prince before he passed away. He mm. was always, you never saw Prince out in the public with sweatpants no. on. You know, no. he was always on. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure, like, uh, I feel I'm not very connected to rap and R&B and hip hop. Um, it's just an area that I need a lot of work on. But I mean, you know, and I do think they have some larger than life personalities. I, I do think they really they do carry that torch in a lot of ways. I mean, how many hip hop, hip hop artists have made it in the news in the last five to six years for ODing? I mean, there's been a ton of them, you know, and how many of them have had court cases and things like that. And that's not a knock at any of them, or it's just, you know, they're the popular music, so they're going to get more attention. But I mean, they definitely are living into that larger than life personality. I, you know, it's just, they're not rock and roll. They're not what I'm seeing. They're not what I'm paying attention to. Um, and that's my own fault for not paying better attention to them. Um, so, I mean, I do think that, I think the torch is being carried. I just think it looks differently. I think it's not, you know, what we're accustomed to seeing in Mick Jagger and Elvis and things like that. Uh, thanks Lance for coming on before we turn this into a singles <laughs> Wayne's world, double, <laughs> double feature episode. <laughs> Yeah, let's 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 not go down that rabbit hole anymore. Where can they find yesterday's concert and how often do you have episodes come out? So yesterday's concert is available everywhere you can get podcasts. Uh, I have made sure that it's available on every single platform so people can enjoy my show. Um, so just look it up yesterday's concert. Uh, we're on social media. We got all the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that most active on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we do lots of fun throwbacks of younger me with lots more hair and going to rock and roll concerts when I was like 17. Um, so that's fun stuff to see, but, uh, I publish every Monday, um, during the main seasons, uh, during the off season in between the, the scripted seasons, I do what are called encore episodes, which are just kind of Q and A's interviews, talk to different people in the industry, uh, different artists, uh, different fans. Um, those come out, every other week in between seasons. Um, so right now I'm in the encore episode period of my seasons. Um, so we're every other Monday. Very cool. If you enjoyed my chat with Lance, um, you can subscribe to this podcast, give us a five-star review on whatever prod podcasting, was it a, whatever podcasting platform you use. 
Give this man a five-star review, people. Give this man a five-star review. He earned it. Get out there right now. You listen to me drone on for like an hour. Go go give this man a review. He earned that. Uh, for our Twitters, you can find us at, or for our socials, you can find us on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your or on Instagram at SoundtrackCast. And uh, thank you, Lance, once again for being on the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.